we finally make our way to the end of John chapter 6. This is, marks our seventh week, seventh sermon in this, in this chapter. And remember, this is really, it's, and it's easy to forget because we've chopped the passage up in, into preachable chunks, but this is actually just one giant story. This is one giant discourse. It all starts with Jesus at the height of his ministry popularity feeding 5,000 men, which would have probably have been twenty to 25,000 men, women, and children. They come to make him king, and the rest of the chapter has just unfolded what has happened since then, how Jesus responded, what he told them, what, what, what they heard, how they responded. And here we get to the end of chapter 6, and we're going to get to the punchline. So where does this story end that began with such great expectations, such high hopes, with Jesus at the height of his popularity in his ministry in Galilee? John 6, verse 60 through 71, tell us. I invite you to stand. And we stand because it's a reminder to you and to me. We're not here primarily to hear what I have to say. We're here to be here to hear what God has to say through us in his word. And I want to serve that purpose. And so pray for me as I do that. So let's read in verse, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now after this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, it seems like such um, an anticlimactical ending. It seems so ominous. It seems so foreboding, this chapter. And so, Lord, we know you've given us all parts of your word even the hard parts to build us up, to increase our faith, to make yourself be known as glorious. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the hope in this passage. You would help us to see the grace in this passage because, Lord, we need that. We need plenty of that. So, Lord, go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your seats. I'm here to officially announce that the college football season is mercifully coming to an end. Okay, I know there's been a lot of jokes 
about who's going to televise the FSU-UF game next week, you know, QVC, the Cartoon Network, what have you. Tennessee Vanderbilt is going to be on pay-per-view donating uh, proceeds to charity, I think, is what's going to happen. It wasn't always like this. No, 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 it wasn't. So for us Tennessee fans, I go back to the mid-90s, and I think it was 1996. Tennessee was ranked number two, and, and Florida was ranked number four, and Peyton Manning was our quarterback. This is going to be the year that we threw off the shackles of the evil empire down in Gainesville. And so I still remember that, that my friend and I uh, trekked up to, to Knoxville for that game. We had just moved to Tallahassee, but um, we went out of town. We were ranked number two, and, and I've never seen a stadium that's more electric. You know, as we journeyed to sort of the mecca of college football there, right on the, the edge of the Tennessee River, and it was the Vol Navy, and everybody was, was jacked up, and this was Steve Spurrier at his prime, and we were going to put him in his place because he's a wee little man. Let's be honest about that, right? <laughs> and as we came running out of the tee, and, 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 and there was just, I mean, there, it, was, it was dynamite in that place. I kid you not, it was 40 minutes later, and I don't mean 40 minutes of game time. I mean 40 minutes on the clock, okay? So it was like, it was, the game started at 3.30, it was 10 after 4, and I kid you not, the score was 35 to nothing, Florida. Okay, I, I, I still remember this. And it was like somebody had let the air out of the balloon of that stadium. But one of the most depressing things was that at halftime, as we're sitting there being miserable, um, you could just see not just hundreds, not just thousands, but tens of thousands of Tennessee fans filing out of the stadium, okay, being taunted by the Gators who were shaking their car keys in our faces, right? I stay to the end. What was supposed to be our finest hour, our crowning achievement actually turned out to be a crushing disappointment. Now, whether you're a sports fan or not, try to put yourself in that position because that's what chapter six is seemingly about, it begins with what is undoubtedly, to this point, Jesus' finest hour at the height of his pinnacle of popularity. You know, theologians call the second year of Jesus' ministry in the sea, around the Sea of Galilee his year of popularity because he could do no wrong. He was healing. He was working. There were miracles to be had. He had developed this entourage of hundreds, if not thousands, of folks and at the height of this popularity, he, he even turned these little fishes and loaves into a feast for 20,000 people. And they were ready to make him king. Yet, as we just read, in just a few short moments, metaphorically 40 minutes into the game, seemingly Jesus is being abandoned by all but his closest of followers, the 12, and even one of them, Jesus notes is a little devil, right? It just, it's, it just, it's not ending the way we thought it would. This is his last pub, act of public ministry in Galilee, and we know that it's never the same from here. This inaugurates what, what theologians call the year of opposition, where the people in Galilee had rejected him, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to kill him. And he, in fact, he was crucified exactly one year later on Golgotha. Now, what Jesus and the 12 are experiencing here is what many of us, if not all of us, have experienced in some context, spiritually speaking. And, and I can describe it simply in two words, and it's this. Spiritual desertion. Spiritual desertion. 
If you have been a professing Christian for any length of time, you completely implicitly identify what's going on in this text. Many of you are getting ready to make that journey to the awkward Thanksgiving table. I hope your journey is not awkward, but I know many of yours will be. And you're going to sit right across from family members. You're going to sit right across from, from high school friends, aunts and uncles, children, people who at one time professed the name of Christ, but yet have walked away. If you've been a part of a church for any length of time, you've had this experience. People in your small group, someone in your accountability group, someone who was near and dear to you, folks that you have known who have flourished for a season. And I don't mean just like a short season, like a day. Some of you have known people who flourish spiritually for, for, for weeks, months, even years. You've journeyed alongside of them. You've ministered alongside of them. You've led alongside of them, only to see in the end they fall away. So as Jesus, and I think the reason John locates this story here beyond the chronological reasons, I think the reason he gives it such an accent is because he wants us to have a category for how we are to think about these things. Jesus is going to enter this year of opposition. He wants his disciples to have a category for how they are to think about spiritual desertion. What are the dynamics? How are we to think about it? What are we to do? What are we to grab hold of? What are we to trust in? And, 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 and just as importantly, and all those are, make no mistake, this is not simply a sermon about the people located out there. This is a sermon about the people located in here and what's going on in our hearts. So it's a two points today. First of all, we've got some bad news and some good news. So we're going we're to talk, first of all, about the, we're going to do an autopsy of the apostasy that we see in this text. The, an autopsy of the apostasy. And, and secondly, a foundation for hope. So we're going to talk about the bad news and the good news. Now, just, just as we get going here for definition's sake, when we say apostasy, we're not simply saying those who don't believe, although belief is a part of apostasy. Apostasy is one who professes faith, one who, who, who gives signs of spiritual vitality or flourishing for a season, knows the truth, but yet walks away. So this last scene opens, look in verse 60, where Jesus is speaking to a large crowd, undoubtedly hundreds of people, of disciples. Now keep in mind, when we say disciples um, in our context, sometimes that's synonymous with Christian. And that's not, that's not always positively the case scripturally. Disciple is just a generic term, which means learner. It means someone who follows the teachings of a, of a of a, of a guru or a noted rabbi or a scribe. And we know this was the case in Paul's ministry oftentimes when he would journey in the Gentile world. These would be people who might follow around from city to city or town to town to hear the teachings of the latest and the greatest. People who would, who would, who would be teaching and doing things that would spark the attention of those around. They would kind of join as part of this entourage. And we know this is what was happening in Galilee. There were hordes of people following Jesus from place to place. 
a very large number, they were checking things out, and maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're in a place in your life spiritually where you're checking things out. You're not totally sure where you are, but you've heard about God, you've heard about Jesus, there's a spiritual interest in your heart. That's where these people are. But now the time has come where Jesus is going to call them to a deeper commitment. See, their allegiance is about to be tested. We've seen earlier in the text that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, have rejected Jesus. They've been grumbling. They don't like what Jesus has to say. It's offensive to them. It's hard for them. But now what would this group do? This group that's a little closer. This group that's breathed the air of Jesus for for a bit longer, been more intimate with him. What happens? Look at verse 60. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, now it meaning his teachings in general, but very specifically his teachings in, in the synagogue at Capernaum. Remember, this is where Jesus is talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. And they, they're smart enough to know that this is not about cannibalism and, and all those sorts of things. They know that this really has to do with the fact that Jesus is calling them to entrust themselves to him. And it tells in the text that, that these are hard sayings. Hey, look at verse 60. This is a hard saying. Not hard to understand. They understood it. But it was offensive. It was harsh. It was something that they literally could not tolerate. And verse 66 tells us what the result of their unbelief is. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, John, as he's describing this, is not speaking merely geographically, although they did stop physically walking with him, and they did go back to their homes. That's, that's not what John typically means in his gospel by walk. Look at John eight twelve. What, what, what's John really saying here? What, is, what does he mean by the word walk? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, what, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What means to follow? It means to to have a, a pattern of seeking after. Remember, John's purpose in this gospel is that you and I would believe. And John goes to great lengths to give us all sorts of metaphors for what it means to believe. So he tells us that that eating is like, I mean, that, that believing is like eating. Believing is like drinking. Believing is like thirsting. Believing is like entering. Believing is like seeing. And he's giving us another metaphor, which I think is really helpful. He says, faith or belief is like walking. And so when it says here they no longer walked with him, in the Greek it literally means they abandoned him decisively. They made a decision once and for all to turn away and to leave him. The question that we have to ask is why? What in particular was so offensive? What in particular was so hard that they couldn't receive it? And I think to understand that, It's important for us to ask, Four Oaks, when 
did the people start deserting? Because remember, to this point, people were following Jesus primarily because of what? His works. See, he was healing people. He was pouring out blessing. He was, he was speaking words of life, but he was, but he was primarily doing things with his, with his hands. He was creating miracles. He was making bread. He was raising people from the dead and healing paralytics. And while these works are going on, things were great. Popularity was high. But when in the text do things start to get dicey? It's when the works transform to words. When, when Jesus begins saying things that make a claim on their lives. When he begins to talk about who God is and who they are and what they need and who they are in relationship to him. When he starts saying all this crazy stuff about needing to die and flesh and blood and I mean, I think that's what verse 62 gets at. He says, if you're offended now, just wait until you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. I don't think he's speaking of his ascension. When John talks about the Son of Man being raised in his gospel, it's always in reference to what? His death, the crucifixion, that he is nailed up on the cross just like a snake on a pole to be cursed by God. Jesus is saying, if, if, if this dying stuff offends you now, just, just wait. To, just wait. Because I think there's really something important for us to learn here about spiritual desertion. See, the litmus test of authentic Christianity always comes in what people do with the words of Jesus versus the works of Jesus. See, when the works of, Je- when, when, when the works of Jesus are happening, when God's blessing your family and your marriage, when God's blessing your finances, your money, your children, your career, your school, when... When, when you see the blessings, the works of Christ, that resonates with our soul. And by the way, all those are good things. Okay? Nothing's to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving. But Jesus offers us his works as proof of the authority of his words. See, when Jesus starts talking, as E.F. Hutton would say, like people start listening or should start listening... And when we hear the words of Jesus, there, there's a, there, we have a few choices for what we can do with that. One, we can do what liberal progressives theologically do. And if you don't like the words of Jesus, just change what the words of Jesus mean. Okay, so, so I know Jesus says, you know, marriage is good and don't divorce unless there's immorality, but Jesus didn't know me. He didn't, or more importantly, Jesus didn't know my spouse. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And, you know, Jesus, I know, would want me to flourish. He would want me to be with somebody who really knows how awesome I am. Okay. Jesus would want me to be with somebody who I could really love much better than I can love the person that I'm with. And I think I'm going to, to opt for option B. See how you do that? Just twist that around. Jesus came to have abundant life and that's what abundant life means for me. So that, that's one choice. You can twist the words. That's increasingly popular. You can do what happens in this text. You just walk away, disillusioned, bitter, sad. You know, there's, there's, there's the rich young ruler, heard the words of Jesus about his money, walked away sad. Judas is in this story. We're going to talk more about him in just a minute. 
But Judas had his heights on certain blessings from Christ, and he didn't like this talk either, so he walked away. But let me encourage us that there's a third alternative in this text. A third alternative. Look at verse 63. Jesus wants to remind us of something. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now, how does the f- now here's the question. How does the Spirit give you life? How does the Spirit give me life? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. As if you're anything like me, sometimes you can be tempted to believe that God's word, Jesus' words, are not our friend. That if, if that simply wasn't in the Bible, if that wasn't in the text, I could really pursue this other option and my life would be so much better. Because that's a deception. That's a deception from the pit. It's a deception that Judas believed as a son of the devil. What, what did Satan say? What was the thing he tempted Eve with? Did God what? Really say? See, there was all these blessings, all these trees and all this. I mean, it was paradise. But boy, the words, the words. And Satan deceives us to think that the good life is not found here. And folks, that is the root and that is at the heart of spiritual deception. And spiritual deception is the first road on the journey to spiritual desertion. Be reminded of something. I think Jesus is echoing the words of Jeremiah 15 here. This is such a great text. Your words were found and I ate them like, like sweet honeycomb. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. See, this is, this is significant what Peter says in response to all of this apostasy. Peter is given this revelation from God because the Spirit gives life. And what does Peter say? Look at verse 66. Lord, to whom shall we go? What? You have the what? Words. The words of eternal life. Now, let me just say something. Um, the prime, I think the, one of the fundamental reasons that John has given us this, that Jesus has given us this text, isn't simply so that you can have a, a spiritual diagnostic tool to apply to the crazy uncle sitting across from you next week, okay? That, 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 that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is not to locate all of this out there somewhere, to make sense of all these people who hurt you and betrayed you and walked away from you. It's not about you. Okay, this, is, this is a matter between them and God. Jesus has been kind enough and gracious enough to give us a tool to root out the unbelief in our own hearts. In our own hearts. You say, Pastor Paul, that is, I mean, I'm a believer. I don't have to root out. What does that mean, root out the unbelief in my heart? Hebrews 3, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews 3 says. Listen to who he addresses. He says, take care whom? Brothers. Just a room full of people like this. Writer of Hebrews doesn't know who's, what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your hearts. You don't know what's going on in my heart. That's why we have to address each other in this way. But listen to what he says. He says, take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end." Pastor Paul, are you saying that all these disciples lost their salvation? No, 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 no. I'm saying they never had it. I'm saying that their lack of struggle against sin, their lack of a taste for the words of Jesus only revealed something about their hearts. I'm thankful for every person in here today who's wrestling right now spiritually. Because that means that there is a spiritual struggle that the Holy Spirit lives within you. The person I'm most concerned about today is the someone who doesn't struggle at all. Who's just like, eh, meh, words of eternal life, whatever. That's for another time, another place, and that's, that's old-fashioned or you know, that's, that's, that's not being true to myself and I want to live my life or whatever, whatever form that takes for you. You see, fighting for faith isn't merely an add-on to the Christian life. Fighting for faith is what Christians do because the Spirit is working in you through the Word of Christ. So, encouragement. As we enter the silly season, the next six weeks of craziness, insanity, you know it to be true, okay? But some of y'all have started bringing those treats around the office, and thank you very much. But, but in the midst of all this, so easy to sort of compartmentalize our spiritual lives. Over here is like life and busyness and, and running to and fro and traveling and this. And, and over here is my spiritual life. No, 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 no. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Exhort one another every day, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart. Because God, when his spirit is active in you, will take you all the way to the end. He will persevere in you, which is at simultaneously the, the foundation of our hope. Let me just spend a few minutes on this, then we'll be done. On what basis can you and I do that? On what basis can you and I look with hopeful confidence at what God's doing in our hearts and what he's doing in the hearts of other people, even those who have seemingly walked away from him. And the foundation of hope is found in the most surprising of places, which is the inclusion of Judas in this chapter. In this little bizarre inclusio, it's like out of nowhere, John just like, you know, let's throw a little Judas in there, you know, a third of the way through the book. And there's two reasons. One is what we've already discussed. Judas is the prototype for unbelief. His heart grew hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word of Christ did not find a home in his heart. He loved the works of Jesus, but not the words. So on one hand, Judas is there as a prototype of unbelief. But, but I think just as importantly, Christian, Judas, the story of Judas is here as a source of hope. Look at verse 64. It says, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now that's interesting. 
This word new, again, not merely intellectual knowledge. New means it's a supernatural knowing. It's like when Jesus would look at the crowds and he knew what was going on in their hearts. Jesus knew. He had supernatural knowledge, which means that when it came time for Jesus to select his disciples, Jesus was not a passive victim. Jesus chose Judas, looked him in the eye, knowing that Judas was going to betray him. These spiritual desertions are not a surprise to Jesus. Judas's treachery is not a surprise. You see, I, I think one of the things that Jesus is wanting to communicate to us is that I'm in charge here. You think as thousands are streaming out of the stadium or your families are deserting you or, or people are falling away that, that I've lost control, that I don't know what's happening, that, that you have no recourse. No, 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 no. You need to understand I've been in control of this process from start to finish. I'm not surprised by everything. What did Jesus tell Judas at the Last Supper? Go. Do what you got to do. And by the way, be quick about it. Be quick about it. Knowing even that he was it devil. Why in the world would Jesus do such a thing? I mean, this is like showing up to your Thanksgiving dinner with one of your in-laws who's tried to poison you three years in a row, okay? I hope that hasn't happened. Slip something in your sweet potato casserole three straight years. You're not going back for the fourth, right? But that's kind of what Jesus has done. Took the fox to the hen house, so to speak. Seems that way, but not really. Because Jesus had a plan. Jesus knew the plan from before the foundations of the world. And what was that plan? I'm coming to die. I'm coming to die for my people. I, before the foundations of the world, I predestined you to be adopted as daughters and sons of Jesus Christ as we looked at last week. Judas is just the means. Judas is just the tool. And Jesus is not telling you that, by the way, and me to to send you down a rabbit hole of philosophical speculation. Well, I don't know how that can be, Pastor Paul, because if Jesus ordained, then how is Judas responsible? That's not why it's there. And Judas is responsible, by the way. Jesus puts this here because he wants to communicate to you with spiritual desertions in your life and mine, I am in control. How, How often does Jesus say in this gospel, my time has not yet come? My hour is not yet come. No one takes my life unless I willingly lay it down. They came to make him king. My time's not come. They came to kill him. My time is not yet come. Jesus isn't surprised by this. He's in control. And so Jesus asked the disciples a question. It's really a question he's asking us. And he's asking us not because he doesn't know the answer or because he's scared of what we're going to say. (laughs) Listen to what he asks them. Verse 67, do you want to go away as well? The, the, The original language is one that communicates certainty. In other words, he's confident of the answer that he is going 
to receive. Why? Why is he confident? Because the disciples were awesome? Because Peter got it right every single time? No, no, no. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, because Simon is, he's out there. There's a little bit of boast in this. You know, Jesus, we, we know you've got the words of eternal life. That's why we're here. And Jesus answered him, hey, wait, wait a second. Did I not choose you, the 12? Did I not choose you, Four Oaks? That's why you're here. That's why you're persevering. That's why you're drawing near. That's why you're here. That's why you're listening to this message. That's why you're, you're working out this this salvation with fear and trembling. This is why God's stirring you and drawing you. You see, Jesus, I, I think this is amazing. Jesus is being deserted. What does he lean on? The sovereignty of his father. The care of his dad. This is not a surprise. This is God's business. Jesus came to die for all those whom the father would give him, and he did. But he entrusts them to God. Even, even Jesus, I know this is hard because Jesus is God, even Jesus leans upon the sovereignty of his Father. And as we will see later in John 8, John, Jesus says, I will lose none that you give me. So, Four Oaks, do you want to go away as well? That's the question. And by God's grace... Let each of us say, Jesus, where would we go? Even if we could, why would we? Because you have the words of eternal life. Do you have the words of eternal life in you? It would be our greatest privilege to talk to you, to pray with you about this. To know that Jesus came to give life through both his works and through his word, going to the cross to die for us so that we might know him and have life eternal. Let's pray. As Mike is making his way here, this is a great way to end our service remembering that and, and reminding ourselves that, that, that Mike is one of those who has said, where else would I go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. So, Mike, I'm going to invite you up here. This has been water we got from the Jordan. We've been chilling for about a month. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. It's not that bad, is it? No. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I can feel it right here. Anyway. Mike. For those who you may not know your story, uh, I know you got some friends here, some, some folks here who came to celebrate with you. Tell us how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I met Jesus, I was an isolated sinner. I let pride and envy be my idol and conviction. I reached out little to anyone and held everyone else accountable for my mistakes. I was always right and everyone or everything else was wrong. I was blameless in my actions, and I was independent from the need for friends or lasting relationship. Yet through this prideful way of life, feelings of low self-worth became frequent, accompanied by the shame of feeling insignificant. It was a painful way to live, and I needed to end that suffering I was experiencing. I could find nothing. That's when Jesus first entered my life. 
and took my sin, hiding me from judgment through his sacrifice, I was reborn in spirit. A clear conscience is an amazing and a saving gift and was only possible for me through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now being kept from judgment through the baptism of Christ's resurrection means eternal life for me and him, as stated in 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I thank God and the Son he sent for this salvation given to me with all of my being. Praise to our Father God the Almighty and his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Mike, is it your profession today that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, it is. And do you desire now to be baptized as a public proclamation of the work of grace God has done in your heart? I do. And it's our great privilege as your church family to be right here with you as we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.